and welcome to another episode of the Royal College of Pathologists podcast, Pathologists in Profile. This podcast series is kindly sponsored by SIRDAN, leading experts in next-generation pathology laboratory solutions. My name is Natasha Cutmore and I'm a histopathology trainee. In this episode, we'll be finding out about the life and career of our podcast guest, Emeritus Professor Mina Upadhyaya, OBE, whose work falls within the pathology specialty of molecular genetics. Meena was born in Delhi, India, and moved to the UK at the age of 19. She pursued a master's, then a PhD in fertility at the Welsh National School of Medicine. This sparked the start of a career that hugely progressed the understanding of the genetics behind several neurogenetic diseases, most notably the NF1 gene, responsible for neurofibromatosis type 1. Alongside her scientific work, Mina has been an advocate for women from ethnic minority backgrounds and established the Welsh Asian Women Achievement Awards. Not only has she written countless scientific papers and textbooks, but her life and career have also been featured in book chapters and even TV. She received an OBE in 2016 for services to medical genetics and the Welsh Asian community. What a truly inspiring career, Mina. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pathologists in Profile podcast. Thank you very much, Natasha, for having me here today. When you were younger, you didn't necessarily have an interest in genetics or pathology, or even plan on pursuing an academic career. You moved from India to the UK when you were only 19 to join your husband and your career ambitions developed after moving. This must have been a real culture change for you. How did you cope with this? Yes, uh, coming to Edinburgh was a total cultural shock. I had no ambitions whatsoever and thought I would follow in the footsteps of my older sisters. They were proud to be housewives, and they were my role models. But I found in Edinburgh that I was bored and lonely sitting at home, listening to Bollywood music while my husband went to work. I was used to the hustle and bustle of India and my busy college life and was also very homesick. Could you tell us about the difference in expectations between your family back home and uh, your life in the UK, especially around expectations to work and having a career? I had an arranged marriage while doing my degree at Delhi University. After finishing my studies, I joined my husband, who had completed his studies in Edinburgh and found a job. I belonged to a middle-class family. Women in my family were not expected to go out to work. As I was bored in Edinburgh, so I requested my husband whether I could get a job in one of the department stores there. My request was immediately denied as women were not expected to work in my family. If I had engaged in a job, it would have reflected unfavorably on my husband, reflecting that his income was not sufficient to support me. Such was the mindset of my family members at the time. But I am pleased that I have seen a radical change 
in their thinking process now. And how do you think this affected your ambition for yourself and the desire for a career? How come you came to study your master's and then a PhD? My husband uh, suggested me to uh, join Edinburgh University for a master's degree. Three months after my studies at Edinburgh University, I found I was pregnant. It was not planned. I carried on with my research. My daughter was uh, born and it was one of the happiest moments of my life. I finished my MSc after she was born. I then joined my husband who was transferred to Cardiff. And here I was able to spend some quality time with my daughter, regularly feeding ducks at Ruth Lake and watching her grow and blossom. I soon realized that I was not cut out to sit at home. So once my daughter started school, I joined the Vash National School of Medicine to pursue a PhD in infertility in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Every day I would drop my daughter to school and focus diligently on my lab-based research and then collect her from school at 3.30 in the afternoon. We would watch Blue Peter together after she had been fed. Those were some lovely and wonderful times that created deeply fond memories for both of us. Very unexpectedly, the first week I started writing my PhD thesis, my husband died suddenly of a massive heart attack. This was a huge shock to me as there had been no indication of any illness. His death ended up changing the world completely for me and for my young daughter. While grieving, not only did I have to think about my studies, but also bringing up my daughter as a single parent in a country that was still somewhat foreign to me. Unfortunately, the rest of my family was back in India. Some of my family members did visit me from India to provide support, but they could only stay here for a short period. We simply carried on, though it was a complete nightmare. This was a very challenging time, and I was very close to a nervous breakdown. After much determination and willpower, I made an effort to resume writing my thesis and following extensive labor, resolve, and time management. I was finally awarded my PhD. I was then offered a postdoctorate fellowship at the Institute of Medical Genetics, Cardiff University. Wow, that's a truly unthinkable thing to happen, especially when you were both so young um, and, gosh, you know, it's so inspiring that you managed to carry on through all of that and still achieve your PhD. Today, you're best known in the scientific community for your work in neurogenetic disease, particularly the NF1 gene. How did you become involved in this project? Okay, so after finishing my PhD, I, uh, my first project uh, in 
at Medicare Genetics was on prenatal diagnosis in the first trimester, that is 8 to 12 weeks of pregnancy, for genetic conditions. This was a very exciting project because before this, women had to wait until 16 weeks of pregnancy to have a test. Prior to these tests, many women with serious genetic conditions in their family chose not to have children. So these tests empowered women and their partners to make their own reproductive choices. Our first prenatal testing using chorion biopsy was to identify sex of the fetus of a carrier mother of the Duchenne muscular dystrophy family. And our findings were published in the journal Lancet. At this stage, I found my research work therapeutic as it diverted me from my ongoing grief. I pay tribute to my late mentor, Professor Sir Peter Harper, who sadly died in 2021. His belief in me and my research, his encouragement to succeed, had a lasting effect on me. I endeavor to transmit the knowledge and experience I acquired from him to my students. Neurofibromatosis type 1, in short, NF1, is a familiar cancer syndrome. NF1 patients have different types of nerve tumors compromising their mortality and quality of life. NF1 project in Cardiff was instigated by Peter Harper, but initiated by Dr. Susan Hewson in 1983. I joined this project in 1986 when Sue left Cardiff to join Northwick Park Hospital in London. In 1987, the gene was mapped to the long arm of chromosome 17, and we, we were co-authors on this paper, which was published in the journal Cell. Before the cloning of the NF1 gene between 1987 and 1990, we used to have quarterly meetings in New York to share our research findings. I distinctly remember that in 1987, Peter Harper asked me to represent him at a NF1 conference in New York without much notice. I nearly fell off my chair with a shock as I was a bundle of nerves then and continued to be so. This was my first exposure to international research meetings and since then I never looked back. In 1989, I was invited to speak at the American Society of Human Genetics at a plenary session organized by Dr. Francis Collins in Baltimore, who afterwards led the NIH. This experience was simply overwhelming. In May 1990, I presented our findings on a NF1 patient with 90 KB DNA deletion at a conference in New York. This caused great interest and stir amongst the attendees and as a result, I was invited by the principal investigator of the Harvard Hughes Medical Institute in Salt Lake City with my DNA samples. My daughter was going to have her exams in June, so I had to delay my visit until the first week of July. As I was about to board the plane, I learned NF1 gene papers appeared in the journal Science and Cell on that day. 
During my flight, I became uncertain about the purpose of my visit. I also realized that if I had joined them a few weeks earlier, I probably would have been on the prestigious gene paper, which would have been an important landmark for my career. However, I was proud of my decision as I prioritized my daughter over my work on that occasion. My stay at Harvard Hughes Medical Institute was very insightful. I returned with many novel technologies under my belt, which I was able to implement in both research and diagnostic setup. Must have been a really exciting time to be active in the field. Who else did you collaborate with? In the 80s and 90s, there was a flood of many national and international visiting clinicians and scientists to the Institute because of Peter's rep- reputation. Those were memorable times, and I can think of at least a dozen of these people who received some sort of training in my lab. I have collaborated with many international key players, to name a few, Professor Francis Collins, David Viscochill, Peggy Wallace, Nancy Retner, Eric Legius, Pierre Wolkenstein, Luis Parada, and Martino Ruggieri. These are all key players in NF1. In the UK, I have collaborated with Bruce Ponder, Susan Hewson, Ross Werner, and Gareth Evans. I co-edited three books on NF1, and my international collaborations allowed me to interact with many diverse minds and gave me great purpose and direction in life. And that's so key, um, those interactions and those collaborations. What other neurogenetic diseases have you worked on? So I have researched and developed molecular diagnostic tests for numerous genetic disorders, including fascia, scapular, humeral muscular dystrophy, Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, Hunter Syndrome, Soto Syndrome, Duchenne and Becker Muscular Dystrophy, Legius Syndrome, Rasopathies, and many more genetic conditions. Wow, absolutely fascinating. What a collection of um, really rare and actually some other very common genetic diseases and some there that I've certainly never heard of. I'm going to have to go away and look them up. From the start of your academic career, you were in the interesting position of working in research and development, but within the NHS. How is this different from a more traditional researcher role? Leading genetic research and development required me to stay well-versed in all the new genetic developments. I led many national and international projects, and this boosted my confidence. My role as the head of NHS R&D in molecular genetics involved developing molecular diagnostic tests and new technology and successfully transferring them to molecular diagnostic lab. Research element was an essential part of my role, which I delivered faithfully to the best of my ability. Leading genetic research and development required me to stay well-versed in all the new genetic developments. I also offered diagnostic service for many diseases in my lab at the early stage of my career. 
I can honestly say that I was doing two separate jobs. I performed all the tasks of a traditional researcher by developing my own research group via external funding from Cancer Research UK, Wellcome Trust, MRC, and many more charities. Supervised PhD, MD, and undergraduate students in my lab, I have published over 200 papers in peer-reviewed journals, 30 book chapters, reviewed numerous papers and grant applications, and examined PhD students as an external and internal examiner. I have been invited to numerous conferences as a speaker. I can still remember one occasion when I was invited to speak at Kyoto, Japan, on fascia scapulohumeral muscular dystrophy, and at San Francisco on NF1 on the same day. I managed to give both the talks as I managed to gain a day crossing the date line while flying from Japan to San Francisco. But after the second talk, I felt like a zombie. Can I just say that I think that's probably the most rock and roll thing anybody's ever shared with us on the podcast. That's, that's incredible. That really is. So we often accidentally find ourselves in leadership and management roles and sometimes we feel like we are unprepared for it. You must have seen many changes in the NHS, both within the lab and management styles. What advice do you have for anyone moving into a management or leadership role? I think a leader is a visionary, able to think outside the box and make tangible decisions for the organization and also has passion and compassion, whereas a manager has specific objectives for delivery. A leader transitioning to a manager's role can be supported by a range of training. In a corporate organization, the employment of a manager helps the leader's productivity. I'm privy to a senior colleague who was an exceptional leader, but not a good manager. Looking at my journey, I did have the attributes of a leader as I created new projects, led them successfully. I was passionate about my work, network internationally, and deliver my projects in a timely manner. However, I was also involved in managing and supervising my research group, bringing funds for the staff. I feel I could have been better in this role if I had received adequate training. A project management requires time management and certain skills which I acquired as I progressed. Over the last 10 to 15 years, you have worked very hard to establish the Ethnic Minority Welsh Women Achievement Association, or EMWA for short. Where did the motivation to do this come from? In 2008, I was nominated for the Welsh Women of the Year Award. Although I didn't win, it was pivotal to what happened next. When I looked around and found there were hardly any BME women in the crowd. I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have an award ceremony just for BME women? I was busy with my research at the time. So a couple of years later, I began working on setting up such an organization. Having no experience in the charity sector, 
I was fortunate to meet with some like-minded women from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, and Sri Lanka who helped me put it together. The first ceremony was for Asian women and it has since expanded and is known as Ethnic Minority Welsh Women Achievement Association, in short, MBA. Many amazing BME women struggle and do not get an opportunity to reach their full potential. MBA is the only organization of its type in Wales that promotes BME women and girls. Could you tell us about the development of the awards and what the impact is now in 2023? The contribution made by ethnic minority women to all aspects of Welsh life is largely invisible. And this has a range of consequences, particularly for girls and young women in Wales, many diverse minority communities. It also hinders the process of integration. Ethnic Minority Welsh Women Achievement Association was established in 2010. Its mission is to recognize and celebrate the achievements of ethnic minority women and girls from different walks of life in Welsh society. It aims to recognize and celebrate the achievements of BME women and girls. It identifies role models for the communities to facilitate community cohesion and integration and finally to promote equality, diversity and inclusion. It was a great pleasure for me to launch Ethnic Minority Women in Welsh Healthcare, in short, EMWWH in 2015. This organization aims to connect BME women in Wales and to create a supportive and empowering network that promotes equality, diversity and inclusion for the women working in the healthcare in Wales. Our organization has evolved over the last 14 years in many ways. Our first award ceremony in 2011 focused on Asian women from six countries across six award categories with no sponsors and was attended by 200 people. And we celebrated six winners at the time. In May 2023, award ceremony embraced all the ethnic minority women in Wales with 25 winners identified across nine award categories. And this ceremony was attended by 500 people. We have identified a highly talented pool of ethnic minority women that is a valuable resource for Wales culture and economy. The stories of Welsh minority communities are seldom heard. We recently published a book 70 Years of Struggle and Achievements, Life Stories of Ethnic Minority Women Living in Wales. This book features the life stories of 40 Black Asian minority ethnic women that were finalists or winners for the Emperor Awards from 2011 to 2019. The women featured include some from long-settled, often mixed families and women from various parts of South and East Asia, Africa, the Caribbean, and the Middle East. Their life experiences are a fundamental part of the history of multi-ethnic Wales. Individual stories testify to the struggle, 
and the remarkable contribution that minority women have made to the many sectors of Welsh society. So far, we have celebrated 150 women and girls as number award winners from a range of sectors including science, technology and healthcare, management and leadership, arts, culture and sports, social and humanitarian, business, self-development, young achievers, violence against women and lifetime achievement award. We propose capturing the life stories of the remaining winners or finalists not included in the earlier book in a separate project that may interest a postgraduate student or even an enthusiastic placement student. Amazing. That's incredible. What what a thing to have achieved. Um, and something related, um, you've been very open about are your encounters with discrimination, not just based on race, but also gender. How do you handle this and keep going? As a BME immigrant, I had to work twice as hard, if not more, to be recognized. And I encountered many barriers at work and beyond because of my language, culture, appearance, and religion. I faced both racial and gender discrimination and developed coping strategies to internalize hurt. Though I'm also fortunate to have found some understanding colleagues as my friends. On a few occasions, I was mistaken to be a tea lady. My questions were not always answered, and if answered, but not actioned. I was not always included in key conversations and decision-making. Some NHS managers did not quite understand the concept of research and development. They were interested in my lab generating funds for diagnostic work that was not within the remit of my job. This constant battle impacted my productivity and well-being. I have to admit, my efforts were definitely better appreciated and acknowledged internationally rather than locally. What advice do you have for anyone who feels that they are in a similar situation? My advice will be not to remain silent, but to call out racism. Silence is the biggest killer. It is essential to raise such issues with the well-being or EDI officer within your organization and also seek advice from many third sector organizations that champion racism. I welcome the anti-racist Wales action plan implemented by the Welsh government last year. Being an anti-racist isn't just being not racist, it means doing something about racism and standing against it. It means changing our laws, policies, practices, and how we work across the services so that people receive fair treatment and their lives are improved. I fully support this initiative. It wants to make significant changes in Wales by 2030 and beyond. We should talk to people about our lived experiences more and make sure we listen to people's experiences and respect what people tell us. 
Sometimes these conversations will be difficult, but they are crucial for reforming racism. Over the course of your career, you have received many awards, have featured in books, and even appeared on ITV's Welsh Lives TV programme. Could you tell us about being awarded your OBE in 2016? Thank you. When I opened the official letter, my instant reaction was that it was not for me. I read it at least three times to be sure that it was not an error. The most challenging task was not to share the news with anyone, not even with my daughter. When I finally broke the news to my daughter, who was in Dubai, she was over the moon, and so were the rest of my family members in India, and my friends who have either worked with me over the years, or who have supported me, or looked after my daughter, while I was away in connection with my work. For my investiture, my daughter, her husband, and my six-year-old granddaughter flew from Dubai a day earlier to accompany me to the Buckingham Palace. All the recipients were asked to assemble in a gallery while my guests were escorted to the ground room and directed to their seats. I had the opportunity to meet other recipients. Uh, we were served water or juice and then briefed on etiquette. Prince Charles shook hands with me and pinned my medal onto my lapel. I was surprised when he asked me what genetic condition I was researching. And he also asked me a few questions about my book. I was really surprised how he could remember everything. I felt so special and thought all that hard work was worth it. We then had professional photographs taken in the courtyard. We took a photo of my granddaughter flanked by beef eaters at the palace. She was reading her book most of the time during the ceremony and only took her eyes off when I received my medal. We had a lavish celebratory lunch and it was a memorable day for all of us. That's absolutely incredible. And to top it all off, what was it like to be featured in a TV programme? When ITV approached me, asking me whether they could film me for TV, my immediate response was, I'm not sure about it. The producer was quite persuasive and I finally agreed. He told me he would film me in my lab and at home, but it ended up in six to seven sittings, including a temple and a park. I felt a bit nervous about it as I do not feel comfortable with media. I also found it difficult to answer some of the questions. However, I was pleased with the outcome as the film effectively portrayed different stages of my life and even included my daughter. I received a positive feedback from my friends and relatives and I will always treasure that unforgettable experience. Ah, oh, that's just amazing. What, what a thing to, to have been part of. 
Previously, we've spoken about family and how difficult it can be to balance family and career. What was your experience and how did you and your daughter cope with the travel demands of your career? As I gradually rose in ranks, it meant more responsibility, more travels. It also resulted in foregoing personal time with my growing daughter. Like many women, balancing family life with professional life was taxing. I still feel very guilty when I think about my time away from my daughter for work and missing her milestone 16th and 18th birthdays. I'm grateful to my friends who looked after her while I traveled for my, for my work. School holidays were like a nightmare. I found it particularly difficult when I was in Salt Lake City for a month. I did miss her and worried about her. Despite all misgivings, my daughter qualified as a medical doctor and obtained an MBA from Imperial College London and excelled in pharmaceutical investment research in London. And she has always considered me to be her role model. Oh, that's incredibly touching. You must be really proud of her. Could you tell us about the surprise 21st birthday you organized for your daughter? I went to Japan for a month to learn novel laser capture micro dissection technology before my daughter's 21st birthday. I booked my return flight arriving a day before her birthday. Before I left, I had arranged a surprise party for her, hired a hall and a DJ, ordered large, large cake, invited all her classmates and ordered the food and balloons, etc. As I wanted to splash out on this special occasion, my flight was considerably delayed, but fortunately I got to Cardiff in time. Nearly 100 people attended this party. There was a good spread of food, including sandwiches, spring rolls, chickpeas, samosas, sticky chicken wings, pineapple and cheese, crisps, and all sorts of other things. A bar was also accessible. Everyone had a blast dancing to the midnight. I still remember that excitement and happiness on my daughter's face. It remained a momentous day for her as it was for me. Ah, oh, that's that's a really touching thing to do, and I'm so glad that it, it worked out well. Is there anyone that you would particularly like to thank for their support? The most fulfilling part of my career was meeting with patients and their families to reassure them that we were doing our best to find treatment for their disease through our research. I'm still in touch with many NF1 Welsh families. I'm a trustee and sit on medical advisory committee for Nerve Tumors UK, a national charity that provides support to patients with nerve tumors. I cannot thank Sheila and Clive Owen from Port Talbot. Their son sadly died of MPNSD at a tender age of 19, nearly 25 years ago. Since then, they have used approximately 
£50,000 for my research. One very kind lady donated all the cash gifts she received for her 70th birthday for my research. Another lady whose granddaughter had NF1 donated £30 per month from her pension until I retired. And finally, another lovely lady with the NFN happily gave hundreds of our cutaneous neurofibromas for our research. These were incredibly kind people and I'm indebted to them for their support towards my NFN research. I'm also grateful to my late mentor, Professor Sir Peter Harper, for having more confidence in me than I did for his unfailing guidance and encouragement. I thank my daughter for putting up with my challenging lifestyle and for all her support and love. My gratitude also extends to my supportive research team and my wonderful collaborators and friends. As I was growing in India, I witnessed a lot of poverty when I stepped out of my house. I wanted to help these people but I didn't have the opportunity to do that. I'm grateful to Wales for giving me an opportunity to grow and also to make difference to people's life through my research, charity and community work. Wow, so many people have done so many great things um, and yeah, wonderful to hear about all of them. Looking back at your career in life, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? My advice will be map out your tentative journey and be brave, imaginative and creative. Don't be afraid to think outside the box and have confidence in yourself. One can never be happy at all times. There will be ups and downs in life Continue fighting, never give up. Call out racism or inappropriate behavior. And finally, give your best at all times and enjoy whatever you do. You can achieve whatever you set your mind to. I would like to finish with a quote from Nelson Mandela. It always seems impossible until it is achieved. Thank you. Wow. Um, yeah, words to live by. Thank you, Mina. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for talking to us today and for sharing your career and life experiences with us. Thank you to our production team, without whom none of this would be possible. And thank you to our listeners for listening. Tune in to the second part of this episode where Mina will be talking us through a case. You can catch up on previous podcast episodes at www.rcpath.org forward slash pathology podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I am Natasha Cutmore, and you've been listening to the Royal College of Pathologists podcast, Pathologists in Profile, sponsored by Sir Dan. <laughs>